I never thought something like this would ever happen to me. It was the middle of January in downtown Boston. Sometime after midnight, it was snowing and a frozen, bitter wind kind of swirled through the streets. I was lying on the cold concrete floor of the Park Street subway station. There were several other men huddled nearby in the shadows and they smelled of cheap booze and urine-soaked clothes. I couldn't get comfortable and my toes felt like ice. I'd been on the streets of Boston for three days doing what homeless people do, try to find food, a safe place to sleep, a little money. But my reason for being there was very different from the men who slept around me. I was taking a seminary class on ministry in the inner city, and the professor thought it would be a good idea for college-educated suburban guys like me to begin to appreciate the problems and complexity of the city, that we, what we needed to do was to do the urban plunge. And so we dressed in layers of old clothes, didn't shave for about a week, and then kissed our wives goodbye. We were allowed to take our driver's license and enough money for one subway ride. Then we were dropped off individually around the various urban neighborhoods of Boston where we had to live for the next four days. The idea for, was for us to experience just the enormous difficulties of a person who was homeless and trying to get their lives back together. And so in a small way I was able to experience and feel the destructive power of what being homeless does to you as a person. Once I got past the fear of being alone in an unfamiliar and potentially uh, dangerous place, it actually got worse. Having to beg for money or for food, having people look at you with disgust in their eyes, or worse, the people who, who didn't even look at you at all, who pretended that you're not even there, like you don't exist. That kind of indifference is really deadly to the human spirit. And, you know, I wasn't very good at panhandling, so I ended up selling my blood at a shady-looking blood center gave me enough cash to live on for a couple of days. And I soon realized that the first thing you lose is your self-respect. You feel like you're nothing, a nobody. You're useless. There's a tremendous sense of isolation and fear. You feel trapped and forgotten. You feel judged like you have no value. You, uh, if you live in that kind of an environment for very long, I think anybody would start to go crazy. No wonder homelessness and mental illness often go hand in hand. They feed each other. Once your self-respect is gone, life truly becomes a downward spiral. The thing is, you don't have to be homeless to know what that feels like. To feel rejected and misunderstood, passed over, unnoticed, devalued, invisible, excluded, ashamed you even exist. The feeling that I'm not enough, that I'm not blank enough and you fill in the blank. Not smart enough, not strong enough, not thin enough, pretty enough not successful enough, not spiritual enough. You fill in the blank. I believe that one of the things that made Jesus so attractive to people was the way that he protected a person's dignity, the way he guarded their self-respect. From the lowliest lepers to the richest rulers, they were all treated with equal empathy and value by Jesus. And that's what we see happening in the story we heard from Mark chapter 5. It's a story of contrast. Right away, this passage contrasts with the one before it, where Jesus was on the western side of Lake Galilee, and the people there totally rejected him. Uh, Jesus had healed this wild and crazy homeless man who lived in the tombs, but the way Jesus did it, it freaked people out. They, they couldn't wait for Jesus to get on the first boat out of town, and we're going to look at that story on October 13th. But in today's story, Mark describes this chaotic mob scene when, when as soon as his, hit, his boat hit the shoreline, people flocked to get next to Jesus. People were literally on top of Jesus like the paparazzi chasing Lady Gaga. 
This is Jesus at his most popular point. But the focus of the story is on the two people who come close to him. It's a study in contrast, like how a high school language arts teacher might ask students to write a paper to compare and contrast the characters in a novel. Mark juxtaposes two very different people. The first is Jairus. This man is a synagogue leader, respected, trusted, important person in the community. In his role as the synagogue leader, he arranged who would read uh, the prayers or, or read the Torah at the synagogue each week. He handled the collection of money and distributed the money to the poor. Other people looked to him as a role model, as a man who was thought to really be close to God. So seeking out help from Jesus was not what a synagogue leader was supposed to do. Because at this point, the religious establishment had put the word out, Jesus was trouble. And Jesus had offended them one too many times, so the doors of the synagogues were now all closed to him. That's why Jesus was preaching out in the open. He'd been banished, wasn't welcome anymore in the synagogues. So think of all the social pressure and the prejudice that Jairus had to overcome in order just to approach Jesus. I mean, he risked ridicule, risked being ostracized by his peers, risked his position in the community. He risked it all because he was desperate. Desperate. His daughter's life was on the line. His daughter, who had filled his life with sunshine for 12 years, he couldn't bear the thought of losing her. There was nothing he wouldn't do to save her. And if that meant going to this wandering teacher, cutting ties with the, the elitist of his day, he'd do it. It was worth the risk. Please come, he pleaded. Put your hands on her and she will live. I'm not sure how much Jairus really believed what he was saying, but like a drowning man, he was willing to grab onto anything. And so he grabbed onto Jesus and Jesus went with him. But the story gets interrupted before they go very far. This unnamed woman appears, and she is the total opposite of Jairus. First of all, she's a woman, and a woman with no standing in the community, an outcast who's, who's suffering, and she's been suffering a long time. For 12 years, we're told she's had this uncontrollable bleeding. 12 years. She's been suffering as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. And all that time, she's been considered an outcast, almost on the same level as a leper. You see, the ancient Jewish world had strict laws about various kinds of diseases, and any loss of blood made a person unclean. And that wasn't just a physical description. That meant you were ceremonially unclean, religiously unclean. In other, in other words, you were dirty before God. Your disease meant that there was something wrong with you, not just with your body. Your disease made you unclean before God, and anybody who came in contact with you would automatically be contaminated by your disease. And so this poor woman, this disease had wrecked her life. Not only did it wreck her physically, but we're told it wrecked her financially. She'd gone to every doctor, faith healer, charlatan she could find. They all took her money. She got nothing in return. So she was bankrupt. It wrecked her socially. Her family members couldn't be around her because of her disease. She was no longer welcome in the synagogue or the temple. And it wrecked her internally. You know, if you've been told you're unclean, if you've been treated like you're unclean for so many years, you start believing that you are unclean. Start believing all the negative things people have been saying about you. So in her own eyes, she thinks she's unclean, that God doesn't care about her. That she'd done something wrong and her disease was some kind of a punishment, some kind of a divine retribution. And when a person is rejected by others for so long, it is easy to slip into this world of self-loathing. No power, no influence, no help, 
no hope. She was not only crippled by her disease, she was also crippled by something even worse. Shame. Shame. Do you ever struggle with shame? Of course you do. We all do at some level. It's a universal thing. Shame is the feeling that there's something about me that if it was known or seen by other people, then I would not be able to connect with them. If they knew it, if they knew the real me, if they knew that about me, they would reject me. Shame is a universal feeling. It's for all people unless you're some kind of a sociopath who, who has no feelings. One of the most popular TED Talks with over 43 million views is Dr. Brene Brown's talk on shame called The Power of Vulnerability. Her books on shame and how to heal from a shame-based life have topped the New York Times bestsellers list. Why? Because shame is a crippling emotion that affects so many people. She explains very simply the difference between guilt and shame this way. She says, guilt says, I did something bad, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. And there's a huge difference between the two. Dr. Brown says that both men and women, they struggle with shame, but it's organized differently. For women, shame comes out in this expectation to do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. Work, home, parenting, relationships, beauty, health, church, all of these things have their own expectations, and they all have to be perfectly juggled. Otherwise, you're not good enough. She says women often get caught up in a web, and I quote, of unattainable, conflicting, and competing expectations of who you're supposed to be on all those expectations become a straitjacket of not good enough. That's shame. For shame, I mean for men, uh, shame doesn't come from a bunch of competing expectations. It's only one thing. The fear of being perceived as weak. The pressure on men is that they're not strong enough because if men appear to be weak, the world is just going to beat the stuffing out of them. Men would rather die than fail, rather die than fall. At work and at home, Dr. Brown says her research shows that women are harder on men than anyone else, and that's when men start to shut down. These different experiences of shame often then set off fireworks in the home between men and women. So shame is epidemic, and getting out from underneath these faults and damaging expectations is no easy job. According to Dr. Brown, the way out is to begin to believe, to really believe deep in your heart that you're worthy of being loved, that you have a deep inner sense of worthiness, that you have a deep sense of your own value. You believe you are worthy of loving and belonging, worthy of connecting. Well, how does that happen in a person's life? How do you turn from those feelings of shame to feelings of worth? Well, friends, that's exactly what Jesus does. That's what Jesus wants to do in you as he places value on you. As he gives you value and worth, you begin to see yourself through his eyes. That's exactly what happens in the story. Jesus protects the dignity of each person, and in so doing, they experience this ultimate value that they have in his eyes. Jesus, Jesus doesn't just talk about it. He treats them with value and worth and worthiness, and it's like water in the desert. Let's get back to the story. For all the ways the woman was opposite of Jairus, she had a few things in common with him. She was desperate. She was willing to take a risk. She was at the end of the rope. Her resources had been exhausted. She tried every earthly remedy. Nothing worked. And she went to Jesus, and her risk in doing so was great. She had to go through the streets incognito, her face hidden so that no one would recognize her because she was literally considered an outlaw for mingling with the crowd that day. 
by going into the crowd, she contaminated every person she bumped into. And if the crowd found out about it, she could have been stoned to death right then. A little street justice could have come down hard on her if her true self had been revealed. She is a physical picture of shame at its worst. And that's what makes this moment so dramatic. Frail, kind of bent over, weak, inconspicuous. Her desperation gave her determination to slip between the crowd, to sneak up behind Jesus and Jairus, and in the confusion, in the jostling of the mob, just to slip out a feeble hand. She's thinking, I'm an outcast, a pariah. I'm not worthy to speak to him. I don't deserve anything from him, maybe one finger. If I, don't, if I can only get one finger to touch him. And then it happens. She touches the hem of his cloak. And like a jolt from a taser, instantly she feels the healing power of Jesus shoot through her body. Stopped her dead in her tracks. As the crowd continued to move, she was left behind, frozen for a moment in time, and she knew she'd been healed. Jesus didn't even do it intentionally. She was healed by the overflow of his love. His purity made her pure. His wholeness made her whole. She tapped into this undeserved grace of God that flowed from Jesus into her. And Jesus comes up with one of the greatest one-liners in the Gospels. Who touched me? The disciples do a double, what do you mean? Who Everybody is touching you. You're like a rock star. Everybody is literally touching you. The mob was all around. They were pressing in. Jesus knew something had happened. Someone connected with him in a way that was unique. And now the woman, she didn't have to say anything. She's already been healed. She's hoping she could just tiptoe out of there, merge back into the anonymity of the crowd. But now she's caught. She's exposed. She drops to her knees before Jesus, and the text says she does that in fear, not knowing what might happen next. Maybe she'd be condemned. Maybe Jesus would be offended by her brazen act. Maybe her true identity would be revealed, her sickness exposed, more shame heaped on her, more rejection. Maybe that street justice was going to kick in. But here she experiences the third thing that she has in common with Jairus. She's desperate. She's willing to be vulnerable before Jesus. And yes, like Jairus, she is rewarded with tender compassion. Jesus says to her, my daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is such a beautiful moment. One of the most beautiful in Scripture. The only time in Scripture that Jesus ever used the word daughter. Think about that for a moment. What that meant to her. This outcast woman. And Jesus used the most intimate of family words to show her worth. Not rejected, but embraced. Not shamed, but loved. Not punished, but healed. Jesus didn't heal her insides. He didn't just heal her physically. He wiped away her shame. Her loneliness, her self-hatred. He freed her from her suffering. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. He gave her peace and made her whole. Could that be what Jesus wants to do for you? To know that you're deeply loved, and because you are deeply loved, you have value and you are worthy of loving and belonging. But we're not done with the story. The drama gets ramped up one more notch. Some people arrive and tell Jairus, it's too late. Your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Real sensitive friends Jairus has got there. I mean, you could use some training from our deacons, I think. I have to imagine that Jairus is just stunned. I mean, he's in shock. At that kind of news, the mind just goes, it goes numb, it shuts down. There was nothing more he could do. He was at the end of his rope, and now his rope unraveled. Those final awful words had been spoken to him. His worst nightmare had come true. And the implication is that Jesus shouldn't have stopped for the woman. If he kept going, he might have made it in time. 
But Jesus ignores them. And I can see Jesus kind of taking Jairus by the elbow and guiding him home and maybe whispering in his ear the whole time, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear is met by faith. It's the only answer when fear rushes in. The presence of Jesus, the gentle, calm, but strong voice of Jesus, don't be afraid. As they approach the home, it's surrounded by professional mourners who are like crows on a fence. It was customary in those days, and is still the case in some parts of the world, in India, Asia, the Middle East, for professional mourners to be on hand when the angel of death is hovering over someone's house. We talk about ambulance chasers today. Well, that's what these professional mourners were like. They were waiting in the wings for someone to die so they could offer their services for a fee because the custom was you showed how much you loved the deceased person by how big a fuss was made when they died. The more mourners you hired, the more you really honored the dead departed. It's like funeral directors who try to sell you the most expensive velvet-lined, gold-plated coffins as though that's the way to honor your loved ones. And folks, it's a box that goes in the ground. Don't spend a lot of money on it. These mourners were wailing away like crazy, and that's why they could so quickly switch to laughter when Jesus said the girl wasn't dead. They had no emotional investment in her loss, only a financial interest, and Jesus shuts them down, kicks them out of the house. And in the privacy of the room where the girl was lying, with only the father, the grief-sticked mother, a few disciples, Jesus again displays this wonderful, intimate tenderness. He takes this little small hand and says, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. It's one of the few times in the Gospels where the very words of Jesus in Aramaic, which was the street Hebrew of the day, one of the few places where the very words of Jesus were preserved. The only other place where the Aramaic is used is when they record the words of Jesus from the cross. And instantly the power of life flows from Jesus into the little girl. The author, creator of life, he brings the spark of life back to her body, sits up, walks around the room. An almost comical footnote, Mark records that Jesus tells them to give her something to eat. Whatever was her illness had been, her body was still depleted, and she needed that common sense bowl of chicken soup. There's a timeless lesson here for us about Jesus and what he seeks to do in our lives. In a shame-filled world, he gives dignity and value. In a world of rejection and fear, he gives welcome and wholeness. Whether we struggle with where we've come from or where we're going, it's the same Jesus who meets us with a touch of grace. When we're vulnerable, when we swallow that stupid human pride or that sense of shame that keeps us from turning to him, when we silence those voices in our heads, we begin to hear the voice of Jesus. and We begin to listen to his truth and not the lies of the world. The last thing Jesus said to Jairus and the people who witnessed the miracle, and he did this frequently, was for them not to tell anyone what had happened. At that time, Jesus did not want this news broadcast because he didn't want to be invited to every funeral in Palestine. Physical healings were not the main reason Jesus came to this earth. Both the woman and the 12-year-old girl, they would face illness and death again. They would face suffering at some point, and at some point death would take them. Jesus' healing just postpones the inevitable. But the lesson is that we are all temporary and fragile and subjected to death. Death is the ultimate consequence of our brokenness from God. And that's the main thing Jesus came to fix, this ultimate healing, this ultimate peace that comes because of the resurrection power of Christ as he conquered sin and death on the cross. From the moment we, we are born, we begin to die. But there's more to us than that. 
Did you know that all of you, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, you will all hear Jesus say the exact same words that he said to that little girl? When you pass from this life to the next, you will hear the resurrection command of Jesus. I say to you, arise. And you will get up from death and enter into the promise of eternal life with him. That's Christ's ultimate work in your life. But in the time being, you don't have to wait until you're desperate to come to him. You don't have to go to Jesus as the last resort. Instead, he can be your first impulse. Jesus wants you to know that he's able to free us from shame. He's able to bring comfort and strength to our lives right now, to live as God intended us to live life. God is rich in grace, rich in power. His resources are immense and infinite. Lots of people touched Jesus that day. Only two were healed. I pray that between the lines of this message, you hear the loving voice of the Master calling you into his presence. And don't be satisfied just to rub shoulders with the Lord. Reach out and touch him. Be vulnerable. Show him your real self. I mean, he knows it anyway. And then let him touch you. Let the overflow of his mercy and grace and power flow into your soul. His cleanness will, cleanness will make you clean. His worthiness will make you worthy. And he will say to you, my daughter, my son, go in peace and be free. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful, wonderful story, this combination of two people, both desperate, both willing to come to you, both met with tremendous compassion and dignity. Thank you, Lord, that that's a model for how you want to work in our lives today. And I just pray that each one of us would be open in dealing with our own places where we feel ashamed to bring those to you, Lord, and to have your touch, to say you're healed, be free. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen.